hey everyone and welcome to episode 25 of season two this is i was a teenage fundamentalist podcast i'm t and this is i'm b that's an easy one i'm just one letter that's all i've got to say yeah easy peasy and today we've got someone really uh exciting coming in to talk to us Remember we said that we're going to get somebody to come in who was a bit of an expert on leaving fundamentalism and, you know, what's the process and all that kind of thing. Well, I think we may have found someone, B. Absolutely. And it, it is super exciting because I think this is such a big part for people is the leaving. It's the, and not just the, I guess, the act of leaving. What do you do afterwards? How do you rebuild it? How do you contextualise it? How do you make sense of all the shit that you've been through? Yeah, so we've got Dr. Josie McSkimming, who's written a book called Leaving Christian Fundamentalism and the Reconstruction of Identity. Josie, why don't we throw to you and you can tell us all about who you are now. And then I think we'd really like to hear about who you were and how you ended up where you are now. Thank you. I'd be most happy to do that. Well, who am I now? I am a clinical social worker. I work mostly with individuals and couples about mental health. I am also uh, a lecturer at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, and I teach a particular style of therapy. So I have been involved in the counselling world for a very long time, but I wasn't always, I guess, in the role I am now, where I do assist a lot of Christians and ex-Christians and people who call themselves all sorts of different um, variations on Christian make sense of their experience and help them, if they want to, consider their journey of reconstruction if they have left a particularly fundamentalist church. Um, having said that, I see lots of people who are still very much a part of the church. As a therapist, I guess stating the obvious, it's other people's journeys, not mine. So I don't impose or prescribe how people should undertake their own journey. I didn't used to be in the situation I'm in now. I used to be on the list of all the preferred Christian counsellors in Sydney. There is a list from Moore College and various other organisations where they had the list of preferred Christian counsellors. And I was on that list. And I believe I'm not on those lists anymore. Um, since I wrote my book, there's been a deafening silence from a lot of people about my book, my experience, my work, and the fact that I have been quite public, well, in fact, very public, in calling out what I see are the real dangers of evangelicalism and fundamentalism on people's lives and people's senses of self. So does that mean you're still working with clients, like people could come to see you and talk to you about... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I do all the time. The only thing is I kind of need to say is that I get very busy and people have to wait to see me. Um, and I would love to see more people than I do because there aren't that many people who do this sort of work. I know a couple who actually were really... Um, involved in the church but have now left you know therapists like myself and when you're kind of doing psychotherapy you need to be appropriately qualified so you I can't just refer people on to anybody I remember 
back in the day when we used to just refer people to somebody who was called a Christian counsellor and sometimes they didn't even have any appropriate qualifications apart from being Christian or going to the right church. Well, that's completely unacceptable to me now. And so this is such an important issue for people. Uh, not only do I like to refer somebody to somebody who was a fundamentalist or an evangelical themselves, but also has appropriate qualifications to assist. So Josie, it sounds to me like you're saying it was more important that the person was a Christian than they were a counsellor. When I was more involved or involved in church communities, when people needed assistance, uh, they were referred only to a Christian counsellor. And of course, I don't think like this anymore, but people were only referred to somebody who not only was a Christian counsellor, but went to the right sort of church. So what seemed to be more important was the church they went to was the right brand rather than their qualifications. I think that still goes on. In fact, I'm sure it goes on. And I think it's very um, worrying when the qualifications of the counsellor would seem to me to be paramount. So Josie, tell us about your story. So how did you, at what age did you end up in a fundamentalist church? How long were you there? What was your what was your journey? <laughs> I was there for far too long. Well, I was converted at Camp Howard when I was 10, a Christian camp. It's not called Camp Howard anymore. I think it's called Anglican Youth Works. All the camps are the same, down on the Port Hacking River. You'd go along on the January school holidays I remember the counsellor, the leader, saying I needed to make Jesus Lord of my life. And so I did and was given a whole um, array of reading materials, scripture union and the like. And I came home and told my family that this is what had happened to me. I come from a rather unusual family. My parents were high church Anglicans, but we are also of Jewish background so this was somewhat appalling to come into the family and start talking about Jesus, my saviour and redeemer in a kind of a high church family with a Jewish background. But my fervour and sort of fevered obsession with the sort that this brand of Christianity from um, Camp Howard remained. And so it continued through my school life and through my adolescence. I was kind of the leader of the Christian group at school. I was very involved in my local church. I was involved in the music, the youth fellowship. Look, you name it. When I went to university, that probably was when I made quite an extreme turn, I think, to the more conservative elements. I became involved in the campus Bible ministry on the campus of the University of New South Wales under the leadership of Philip Jensen at the time and became very involved during my four years at university. And that's when I became schooled in two ways to live, discipleship training. I was involved in the Billy Graham crusade, training for the crusade, following up from the crusade, uh, asked to become part of the ministry training scheme, which I declined. And I'm very grateful for that decision, but I was very involved. So you can see this has been a very long-term involvement. I also was involved in St. Matthias for many years, St. Matthias Church. 
just slowly over time, and I can explain this um, in a moment, I started very slowly to have these points of incongruence and points of distress and disturbance where I realised that I wasn't agreeing with a lot of what was being said. I felt quite disturbed by what was being said. And I think I started to cultivate a rather subterranean sense of self, what I call in my book, a double life, where I was thinking some things quietly, sort of maintaining some outsider status while participating sort of on the surface in a very engaged and full-throated, wholehearted way. But, you know, this took about 20 years before I left when eventually there's too many of these episodes. The incongruence is too much. And in the end, you just say, well, what the fuck, I can't do it. And that was probably my journey. Excuse the language. We like the language, Josie. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we do like the language. So, Josie, for the sake of people listening, because a lot of people that are listening have come from charismatic backgrounds, and certainly not everybody, but a lot of people that are tuning in will come from a charismatic Pentecostal background. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the different kinds of Anglicanism, because I think for most of us, we sort of think it's quite respectable, it's quite staid, and yet you're painting a picture of quite extreme fundamentalism. Well... Ironically enough, I did have um, some involvement with Pentecostalism as a teenager when we were encouraged to go along um, by some of our leaders to various Pentecostal churches and to try and talk in tongues. And I remember that very distinctly, as other people listening will remember that, as you try and find it in yourself or wave it around inside yourself or say these phrases. And I remember at the time thinking, this is so fake. But that was what we were encouraged to do. So I did have some taste of it as a teenager, but it was too much for me. I guess the church that I went to, particularly when I was at university, it's very kind of academic, very learned, very Bible-focused, less experience-focused. We were taught not to kind of trust Pentecostalism because it was all based on experience. We weren't to trust Catholicism because that was based on the authority of the church, we were uh, to only, only put our faith in the revealed word. It was all about this biblification of your life according to a particular understanding of the Bible, you know, a particularly evangelical understanding, which is meant to be the kind of the more intellectual or the learned edge of fundamentalism. But to my way of thinking, there is a very blurred line between them. The sort of evangelicalism I experienced is more a fundamentalism, I think, in the modern sense, in that it's this is what the Bible says, because we, the experts, are telling you this is what it means. If I say it means this, then it means this. That's a form of fundamentalism, which very much creeps into evangelicalism. And you'll be very familiar with there being certain shibboleths or tests, Bible statements to see whether you're a true Christian or not. In the kind of charismatic tradition, it's whether you've had the second blessing and whether you talk in tongues and whether you've kind of experienced that form of Christianity. For me, as a kind of an Anglican evangelical, 
there are certain tests to see whether you're a true Christian, and they generally relate, sadly, to your understanding of men and women and their relationship, your understanding to the inerrancy of Scripture, your understanding in relation to sexuality and queer sexuality. These things are the tests. And if you don't accept those as sort of proof um, of your Christianity, you don't subscribe to certain conservative views on those matters, then you're not a proper Christian. It was kind of said that we were free to explore the Bible and we should never just listen to what was said out the front. We should always explore the text for ourselves. But let me suggest you're in this bubble of what I would call rather textual unfreedoms. You actually do not, in reality, have the freedom to intellectually question, to explore, to consider things differently. If you do, you are rapidly brought into line. There are lots of ways of controlling what you think and what you say and what you do. And I think there's definitely similarities between what you're describing from your Anglican evangelical experience to what T and I have often spoken about in our Pentecostal experience. So even though, you know, quite different flavours, most definitely very similar experiences. Hmm. It's funny listening to you because, you know, when you hear about Sydney Anglicanism, when we were embedded in Pentecostalism, that was just considered to be very intellectual and very biblical and very, you know, but at the same time, very straight laced. But I just hear these smacks of sexism and this diminishing of women. I mean, you even mentioned it there that one of the tests was the role of women. Mm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, look, that was a a huge test. And I think this became much more apparent when I was older. What seemed to happen is that there was a lot of discussion in the 80s about ordination of women. And the evangelical church just doubled down on its argument around the differences between men and women in kind of church communities and in this kind of God-given hierarchical relationship. When I was at university, I didn't kind of experience it quite as strongly, but it seemed to really creep in through the 80s and 90s. Previously, we were called co-leaders of groups. Then we'd have a male leader and the female was called the assistant leader. These really subtle ways of discriminating between men and women. A group sprung up called Equal But Different, which I think was a very mischievous group. Um, I still do because it implies that there's this kind of equality. But if there's anything but, it's a really immutable subordination of women and this subjection to women and This is kind of what I experienced, particularly in my 20s and 30s when I was having children and going back to work. A lot of control and a lot of condemnation of working women and of women being a certain way, the cultivation of this quiet, gentle, servile spirit. And of course, the controlling of sexuality. In my book, I talk about this phrase, docile bodies and a docile community. You need to keep people from 
rebelling and resisting and refuting and protesting. And so there was various rules about sexual expression. And these are laid down again as these immutable interpretations of scripture. And this is the standard that you need to apply to your life. So you kind of immersed in this, um, this bubble. And you have to enact this way of behaving, definitely heterosexual sex, only within marriage, that's it. And that's the rule from scripture, and that is very strictly reinforced. And it's reinforced, and I argue this in my book, some people think power is something kind of more authoritarian, but I think in Christian communities, it's more disseminated or dispersed through the whole social body. Hence, um, I use the phrase, the Christian normalizing gaze. So this idea that we're all under this gaze all the time, which invites self-monitoring, self-surveillance, confession in small groups, correction in small groups. So yes, there is an authoritarianism about it, and yes, there are certain leaders, but it's reinforced all through the social body of the church. We, we enacted ourselves. We're the recipients of power, and we also enact power on other people. And, you know, that's kind of what I came to realise. I was a vehicle of this power in terms of changing and challenging people's identity beyond, you know, what might be their own preferences for their life. It just became such an unethical position to be holding. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think it definitely does make sense. And you were talking before, you were saying there was, um, you know, it took you about 20 years really to unpack a lot of the stuff before you finally left, I guess, the church. Um, What were some of those key indicators for you? What were some of those things that you remember I'm sure there was hundreds, if not thousands, of moments <laughs> throughout that period. Um, but what are some of those key things that you just went, what the fuck? What have oh, I been believing? There was, look, there was a lot. I think in the 80s when I started, and look, probably some people listening to this weren't even born then, but in the 80s when I started reading books about women in ministry and honouring women in ministry and the equality between men and women, in church. And I said to my minister, I'm reading them, I'm finding very interesting. And this minister came over to um, my husband's husband and I to our home and spoke to us, must have been till the early hours of the morning about why I shouldn't be reading them and the dangers of reading them and my complete lack of theological expertise to be reading such things. I was sort of horrified, but chastened at the same time. So that was one of those sites of injury. And there was many others. There was, I remember this very clearly. I was at a church meeting and even the name of it makes me sort of squirm. What women need to know about men. And this was basically a very long-winded sort of apology for men behaving badly and women having to tolerate and manage it manage it because boys will be boys and girls will be girls sort of thing. And I 
in this group stood up and it took a lot of courage because I knew it wouldn't be accepted to say that I didn't like the ideas that were being presented about men and women and about how we needed to raise our boys in this very stereotypical way, playing competitive sport, learning to use tools, etc. And I was told in this meeting, subtly, but not that subtly, that if I raise my boys this way, they will probably turn out gay. So I sat down kind of humiliated, shamed. These, these were years before I left, but they were just these sort of sites of micro injury. Well, more than that, perhaps, where I just realised that I did not agree. I did not think the same. And if I expressed it, I would be brought into line. Look, the big thing for me, the big thing for me was seeing men and women in these unequal relationships. It was just unacceptable. I, I had to protest that. And my sister, um, my late sister now, was gay and kind of that terrible pain that I know I caused her by my jun- judgmentalism still pains me because that interfered in our relationship in ways that I wish it never did. Perhaps I realised also as I was reading and thinking, and I remember a distinct moment where I thought I really don't believe in hell because even if God is real, the concept of hell that we have is so narrow, so small, so cruel that I I just thought it was um, illogical, irrational, and just decidedly unhelpful. And I thought that is gone. That is just gone from my palette of belief. What did what did that do for you? Like having those things really start to pierce and start to get you to question to the point where you did eventually leave. Like, what did that do to you? What was described that? Um, you know, what was going on for you at that time? Well, like lots of people, it was agonising. It was agonising. I mean, I had my gay sister. Well, I was also involved in organisations that were just on the edge of conversion therapy. I mean, that creates such a dissonance inside you, such a, a, a kind of a internal ruction and shattering that's what I mean about that double life until eventually it just breaks forth so there's an awful lot of pain and probably what a lot of people relate to I had enormous fear so when I first sort of started speaking publicly and I wrote letters to the Herald I wrote my book I've written opinion pieces I made a couple of television television appearances, I was terrified of the condemnation and shaming I would experience. Ironically enough, quite the opposite happened. You know, I just got frozen out. It's just the waters close over the top of you as though you never existed. People don't want to know what you had to say. Somebody said to me, Josie, they think you're the Antichrist, which is so cruel and so terrible. And it would have really frightened me once. It doesn't now. But it just goes to show that the shaming and the ostracism, when you really start to call this out, can be quite devastating. And it's devastated many people that I've worked with. I mean, thankfully, I'm now, 
you know, nearly kind of 20 years since I've left. I Actually, that's not quite true. The, the last time I attended properly a church service was January 2009. I remember it very clearly. Um, so it's not quite that long. You know, those kind of internal distress is very real. Ironically enough, and I say this in the book, um, and I've experienced it in my clinical work, is that some of that depression and anxiety that people experience tends to dissipate once they leave. The idea that leaving is the terrible part is not quite the same. Um, you know, it's maybe it's like coming out when you're gay. Sometimes the staying in is much harder than the coming out. And I think sometimes when you eventually do come out, it's um, not so terrible once you've had a little bit of distance between you and some of those really bad experiences. Josie, you talked about the sites of injury. I thought that was a really interesting term because we would probably more talk about, remember when this happened, remember when that happened, and that's the, <laughs> the language that we would use. But you talk about these sites of injury. Did they build up over a period of time? Was it you sort of looked back one day and went, hold on, I've got all these things that have happened to me, all these sites of injury, this isn't worth staying? Well, I think what's interesting is that you often discover, along with the sites of injury, a whole alternative story of who you are that has resisted and refused, you know, what I kind of call an anti-pastoral revolt. And you don't realise until you have enough of these incidents. So you've got a lot of these, oh, remember when that happened. But if somebody asks you, well, what did you do? And you realise you responded to protect yourself, to protest, to really say no. Uh, and I think that can be quite uh, helpful for people to realise that they have been over time protesting and resisting and refusing to comply. There's another whole story of who they can be underneath. I, I think that it's not so much discovering who you are when you come out of um, fundamentalism, but sometimes refusing to be who you were. So it's not so much a kind of a discovery like, who am I? It's like I'm just refusing to be that person. And then the kind of the reconstruction of the self can come from there once you really refuse. So Josie, how did it come to be that you became this therapist that people who were coming out of fundamentalism were attracted to? Was that from your book or was it prior to that which led you to write your book? Oh, look, I think it was prior to that. I started, I, I wrote a piece a long time ago when I wasn't out saying that I had a lot of ethical dilemmas when I, because I was working for a Christian-based organisation, when my own questions were in parallel with the clients I was working with. So I wrote a piece about how I was managing that ethically because I was going through this process of questioning and the clients were too. And as I say, I was in a church-based organisation, so I had to manage that respectfully and I also wasn't quite sure what I thought. So I was in this very grey zone. So perhaps I got a reputation as somebody who could understand this. And I started talking about it a bit more publicly. I just think probably 
on that ever-present grapes, grapevine, people realise that there was somebody who they could talk to. I mean, I've been a therapist in private practice on and off since 1996. So I've been around a long time, but people have realised that perhaps more recently, I might be somebody to talk to about these very tricky issues spiritually. So my work predated the Sydney Exvangelical Movement, all of that. That all came afterwards. Tell us about that. What's the Sydney Exvangelical Movement? Well, I think it's very interesting. Um, this term, Exvangelical, was kind of coined in the US, I believe, by Blake Chastain and used extensively by Dr. Chrissy Stroop, who's also written a book about this called Empty the Pews. And it was in a huge response to authoritarian Christian and that you're not an evangelical, you're now an ex-evangelical. And so various groups have sprung up through social media saying we're ex-evangelicals and there's one of those in Sydney. And, you know, they're all over social media now of people wanting to talk about deconstruction and reconstruction. You know, a lot of queer people saying, I need to find a community where I can talk about this. And I think the legacy of, of guilt and fear and shame for people who have been so condemned, their sexuality so condemned, and women too actually, have a real um, journey, you know, cliche as that is, to really uh, embrace with great joy and um, acceptance their sexual expression, their sexual identity, their sexual orientation. So what about the afterwards? Like we've talked about what it's like to be in there. We've talked about what it's like to leave. What what advice do you give to people or what, what things would you sort of highlight for, for the afterwards? Like I've left, what do I do now? Well, I think one of the main things is for people to understand that it does take time and it's not as though... It just really doesn't happen quickly, either the leaving or the new sense of self. But I think what I've discovered from my work with people and from my research into this, because, you know, I did a PhD on this, is that the new ethical substance or the new ethical frame or the new ethical living that you discover afterwards can be very freeing. And in a liberal democracy like ours, when you have not really received, really experienced a lot of freedom, you thought there was freedom. You thought that you were getting community and freedom within the church. And a lot of people who've quite vulnerable and have been abused and have a traumatic background join the church in the hope of finding community and freedom. And they don't really find it. They can feel marginalized and, and of course, do I need the disclaimer? Not all churches. And and I'm certainly happy to say that. As I say, I still work with lots of Christian people. But I think it's important for people to understand that it is a long journey, but there is something very important that you can discover about yourself along the way. And to be curious about that and to be affirming and acknowledging about what you discover, particularly in this journey of times of refusal and times of protest, what you might learn and discover about yourself, what you might know about yourself and what you hold really dear, what values and 
commitments and principles are emerging about you that you didn't know before. And I think that can be a really exciting process. Once you're unencumbered, you can kind of go back to first principles and think, ah, okay, well, what do I think about abortion? What do I think about men and women in relationship? What are the different ideas about this? What can I sift through and accept and discard? How can I go on a journey here? And, and that can be invigorating for people. You know, you're, you're less being seen by your church community and being told who you should be, and you're more doing the looking. And I think that can be really interesting and um, inviting. That's not to say that it's not incredibly hard. The main thing that I think people really struggle with is the loss of community. And the churches, of course, I think that's, what would I say, kind of part of their game plan. You invest so much time, so much money, so much energy into these communities. They take up your whole week. When you leave, there are some sort of people who try a little bit to call you back in, but if you're not being compliant, they don't want to know you. As you withdraw, they withdraw from you. And so it goes on. Often some fundamentalist Christians are quite threatened by the questions you throw up, I suspect, because they might be thinking them themselves. So they withdraw from you. And that can be a really hard time trying to find a new community. And people talk to me a lot about that, trying to find a new community of like-minded folks who they could just relate to because they really miss that. And there's so much sureness in being a part of one of these communities. You know you've got the, you've got the answer to the problems of the universe. And if you can just get it right, you, you're kind of part of God's plan. And once you start moving away from that, you kind of don't have the community and you've realised perhaps that what was safe and secure, at least for a time, may not be anymore. It's not easy, yeah. No, no it sounds incredibly difficult. And obviously you're quite passionate about this space so how is it for you when you're in a therapeutic relationship with a client they're really st starting I guess to explore some of those trigger points that you saw some of those things that they're starting to really be in their face and starting to question that must be difficult because you'd probably want to jump in and go well <laughs> this was my experience but you can't in a therapeutic relationship how does that work for you Oh, look, that is hard. And look, I do share from my experience if I think it's going to be helpful to people. I'm not in that traditional sense, like a kind of a tabula rasa. I'm not like a blank slate. Therapy is a conversation and I do share of my experience, but the skill is if you, as you share of your experience, I don't want to eclipse or kind of get in the way of other people's journeys. So I can't say this is how you should do it. I can say, well, this is something that I found or other people, because I've talked to lots of people, or this is what people found in my book or people I've worked with have found might have helped them. So I can certainly make tentative suggestions to people. And people often are really happy to get that information as long as it's not given to people as kind of, you know, rigid pieces of advice or instruction. They've had enough of that, if you get my drift. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if you had to do a very quick thematic analysis of the things that, that come into your 
uh, space. What what are the big things that people are grappling with around fundamentalism that they're trying to make sense of? Well, the people I work with, it's often after a marriage is broken up. You know, I've kind of been interested in the whole family violence space and about how some of these ideas about equal but different and hierarchical relationships within marriage, that these can, the theology can create situations where women really are very powerless, where they can be emotional, sexual, financial, even physical violence. So I talk to people coming out of those relationships, clergy wives, or people who've kind of been in relationships that they haven't realised have been abusive, and that's incredibly painful, and that's uh, often very costly because, as you're probably aware, often the church believes the perpetrator and not the victim or the survivor of the abuse. And the, the victim of the abuse often leaves the church and is sometimes regarded as some kind of Jezebel and whose reputation is tarnished. So that's very difficult. So that's a real pressure point. I certainly deal with gay people who've been uh, involved in church communities. This is a big issue for me, probably because of what happened between me and my own sister, which thankfully was repaired. But I'm really conscious of what the church does to people who have an alternative sense of sexual identity or sexual orientation. I think it's cruel. You know, as, as people kind of resist that Christian gaze and, you know, what I've called that anti-pastoral kind of revolt, the resistance becomes political. It's like a political spirituality. And I think that can be powerful too, that people are making some kind of political statement. They're just saying, no, it's wrong. And I can work with people with that. The other space I work with, of course, is when dealing with families when, you know, my client or even my colleagues and friends are moving away uh, from, you know, the, the really fundamentalist beliefs and their family, either their wife or their children, you know, are still very much immersed in the church or their parents. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people who love their parents dearly, but they just no longer want to subscribe to these particular theological discourses and that's that's incredibly painful and the parents are in pain too some of them think that they've been praying for their children for so many years sort of god owes them to give them christian obedient children and these young adults i work with have to say to their parents you know i'm gay or i don't want to be a part of the church or I'm leaving my husband, or I'm leaving my wife. And this, these are very difficult transitions. Look, you can appreciate that. Josie, maybe I'm about to show my naivety or ignorance of Anglicanism in Australia, but I was always of the <laughs> yeah. point of view that there was, you know, there were liberal factions, there were conservative factions, and they tended to usually be sort of high church, low church. But within Anglicanism, is there a role for those liberal factions to be there to pick up the pieces or are they so distant from each other that people just won't go there? How does that all work? I actually think that's a really good point because, in fact, a lot of those liberal churches have become refuges for people that I've worked with and people that I know. Uh, so those more liberal 
uh, churches, high churches, the ones that are more honouring of women and wanting women uh, in kind of equal roles with men, churches where women are ministers, uniting church. They've been uh, an, an oasis, water in the desert. And a lot of people I work with are still in those more liberal uh, churches. Sydney Anglicanism is is somewhat unique even in Australia. I think it's probably got more akin to some of the um, the churches that that we read about in the United States. It's different. What's the history? People have written history books about this, you know, from the time of the so-called flogging parson, that's Samuel Marsden. Sydney has been regarded as this kind of hotbed of sin for years and has needed correction. I also think that there was a deliberate plan, perhaps in the early 80s, amongst certain very evangelical conservative Christians to try and control the diocese so that it could go in a certain direction. There were plans that certain key people would be put into certain positions to control the the diocese so it wouldn't go into uh, more liberal territory. But the liberal territories still remain. And yes, those churches are very important to people. Very. So, Josie, for those people that are listening, that are grappling with their faith or with fundamentalism or grappling either with coming out or have have come out of fundamentalism and trying to move forward, what are your tips for them? What are the things that you think are the things they should be pursuing, I guess, to help them as they journey along? I don't want this to sound like a cliche, but it is important for people to know you're not alone and that there are lots of people who've gone along this kind of trajectory also and that you can uh, reach out and find people quite easily through social media. There are many books written now about deconversion. There are many memoir memoirs written about why I left the church. There's my book. There's, you know, mine's sort of slightly more academic, but there are many that are written. So start looking for those things so you can kind of feel connected so you're not alone. That's important, particularly if you're losing community. Then find people to talk to about it. Find people who won't say to you, who won't kind of judge you or tell you what to do. Again, it kind of sounds obvious, but there might be some people that say, yes, but, you know, what about the person of Jesus? And yes, you can give up this other stuff, but don't give up Jesus. You really don't need people to tell you what you can and can't give up. You need somebody to say to you, where are you up to? And you're not anybody's mission field. And I think that's important because when you're immersed in you know, Christianity for a long time, you understand that everybody else is a mission field and your job is to go out and tell them the good news. You're not anybody's mission field. You don't have to justify your doubts or confusion to anybody. And if people start giving you the usual apologetics, you probably know them anyway, back at you, you don't have to answer questions. You can have your own integrity because some well-meaning Christian friends will talk to you about, well, what about the historicity of the Bible? You actually don't have to answer these questions. You can say, I don't know, and I'm not sure, and I don't know if that's important anymore. Just kind of knowing that you can stay in this 
I don't know space for as long as you need to stay in an I don't know space, even that in itself can be freeing. You don't have to be sure. You don't have to have all the answers sewn up. But talking to people, I mean, talking there, you can talk to professional people, sure, but you can also talk to other people who you know have left the church or you can just talk to people who are trusted, who you know will give you the freedom to just be in the place that you're in without judgment or without advice or without condemnation. That sounds easy and it isn't always easy, but it is important to stay connected, to not kind of think I'm on my own with this because that I think can, you know, lead to, you know, terror and fear and a whole lot of guilt and worry rather than being talking to other people. I, th- I think that's really important. I mean, the the power of just being um, and being comfortable with sitting with, I don't know, uh, is a place that took me a long time to to get to, and I'm I'm very comfortable there. I'm possibly too comfortable there, and quite <laughs> complacent. But I know T, um, you know, you've had some similar experiences as well. Yeah, most definitely. I I think. People can listen to this and say, wow, this is very different from Pentecostalism. I think when you get past, you know, the music and the songs we sing and some of the issues here and there, I think it's very, very similar. And and I love the the way that you framed it, Josie. And, you know, I, I love that. I'm going to stick with that sides of injury. I think that's just brilliant. I love that term. <laughs> so my, my question to you now, Josie, is how do people find your book and how do people connect with you if they choose to? Well, look, I've got a website. I'm very easy to find. Um, People can connect with me however they want to. I just need to say to people that I'm not kind of just sort of available just to kind of chat on the phone. You know, if you want to come and see me professionally, certainly talk to me, but you may have to wait to, to do that. And if I can't see you and I will try and refer you to somebody who can and to help you, I kind of speak quite frankly on Twitter about exvangelical issues, which hasn't earned me a whole lot of friends. <laughs> but that's kind of part of, I think, the activism that comes from my own experience. I feel like I owe it to my research participants for my book. I owe it to my clients to get out there and publicly say stuff and sort of cop the eggs because I'm older now. I've been through a lot, you know, I'm big grown up and there's a lot of my clients who just need somebody else to do it for them because they're just not really in a position to do that. They're too tender. So I'm happy to do that because I believe in activism and this what I call a political spirituality or um, political action. I mean, people can get in touch with me. They can kind of follow me on social media if they want to and connect with me that way, email me or consult with me professionally. I think what we'll do, Josie, is we'll put your contact details, professional contact details in the show notes. If you're listening to this and you you think that, you know, there's some, some value in connecting with Josie or at least with her publications, then by all means, check out the show notes. Look, thank you so much, Josie. It, it really has been, um, I think, a gap that has come up when we have been speaking about many different topics about how do people actually access help? How do people contextualise? How do people unpack, deconstruct, reconstruct, all that stuff? 
And I think that uh, you've spoken to a lot of that today. Uh, I think there's been some really fantastic insights. So I just want to thank you for, for making time and, you know, all the best for the thank future. Thank you. In your agitating, I love the fact you <laughs> agitate, so well done. Oh, well, there you are. I mean, I suppose what I've realised over the years that it's not me, it's kind of this, you know, this gaze I was under, and I think that's helpful for people to know it's not you. Don't get caught up in a whole lot of self-blame and self-condemnation. This is a system of power, like any system of power. And I think that's what really came out for me when I did the research was really analysing what kind of power it was. And that that helped me to sort of take the pressure off myself and the, you know, and the self-blame and the self-criticism and the guilt that goes along with leaving to understand that it's okay to move away from a system of power you know, if you once you kind of jump out of the frog pond, you realise it was just a frog pond. But you've sort of got to jump out. It's not the greatest metaphor because, as I've said, you jump out, you jump back in, which I did over many, many years. Thank you again. And next week, T, dating and marriage. Dating and marriage, I think it's sort of a follow-on from kind of what we're talking about here. I think we're going to talk about some of those um, unequal power structures that we saw as Pentecostals. I don't think we're going to use quite the academic language. I sort of feel like this has been quite a different episode than what we were kind of used to, but I think it's been really, really powerful. And I know that I was sitting there just going, uh-huh, yep, yep, that's it, uh-huh, yep, yep, sites of injury, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's been absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Thank you. See you next week, everyone.